0: To now. In this podcast, we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop. We will also consider the wider world of pop culture and how our favourite compilation albums shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our musical journeys. I hope that you'll enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the podcast on your favourite podcast place, and there's plenty more with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. <laughs> Joining me for this episode is Alexis Petridis. Alexis is the head rock and pop critic for The Guardian, where he regularly provides a glittering array of insightful reviews, articles, and essays from across the musical spectrum. Alexis has also been a regular contributor to GQ and was the final editor of the magazine Select. In 2019, he took on the ghostwriter responsibilities for Elton John's colourful and extravagant autobiography, Me described as hilariously self-lacerating and a landmark of the memoir genre. Alexis was also the recipient of the Record Review Writer of the Year category at the Record of the Day Awards eight times between 2005 to 2012. Alexis has said that we now see the 80s through a slightly rose lens of nostalgia, and nostalgia is a form of curation. So with this in mind, it's going to be great pleasure to unearth his views on what has been described as one of pop's watershed years. Alexis, welcome back to now.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm very very pleased
0: to be here. It is great to have you on board. So how is life treating you at the moment then?
1: It's all right. Yeah, soldiering on. I mean, I think as everybody is. Um it's 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 fine. It's it's like a constant uh routine, you know. It's just a that that's it. And I'm a man who likes routine, but even I am getting very sick of the routine that we're we're currently in, but it's nice to do things like this because it's just, um, it's just better than, it's just something different, you know, it's just something completely different to uh, what I'd ordinarily be doing at this point. So um, yeah, thank you very much again for having me. My earliest music memories are, are really early. Um, I grew up in, in Yorkshire. My earliest memories are all either music or telly or mostly music on telly. Um, So the first things I can remember are the kind of the fag end of glam rock. I was born in 1971. So, you know, things like Alvin Stardust and and Wizard and uh, Slade and things like that, because they're on TV and they're very visually striking. And the records my mum and dad had. My mum and dad were not huge music fans and they had just exactly the records you would expect a young couple in the early seventies to own. Red and Blue Beatles compilations, Elton John, Goodbye Elaborate Road and Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, Band on the Run by Wings, um, like a Rolling Stones compilation called Made in the Shade, No Secrets by Carly Simon. So these kind of records, Carpenters. And then the next records I can remember them buying are sort of Saturday Night Fever and Rumours. I, I sort of have this theory that the music you hear when you're very, very young, before you're able to sort of make active choices about the music you like. that penetrates your soul on an unbelievably deep level and you never get away from it. And God knows, you know, certainly in my late teens and early 20s, I ran as far as I could from, from this sort of thing. And here I am, you know. Oh, the other thing was my dad liked soul music. My dad likes Marvin Gaye and Gladys Knight and things like that. What do I really love? My favourite music is glam rock, disco. <laughs> um, you know, I love early 70s singer-songwriters. I wrote a book with Elton John. That sort of stuff really, it didn't shape my music taste as such, but it just it's this sort of bedrock of stuff that I love. I had records bought for me. I was very sort of into records at an early age. I was talking to my dad about this in the summer, and he revealed for the first time, certain members of my family thought there was something wrong with me. Because apparently as a kid, as a really little kid, all I used to do was like sit in the corner looking at records. Um, and my dad thinks that's how I learned to read uh, is by reading record labels. By the time I started buying records myself in in kind of earnest, it was about 19, late 78, early 79, which is obviously an absolutely fantastic time to be buying music for, because, you know, I think 1979 is one of those years in particular Everything that's good that's happening in music, two tones happening, you've got you know, the jam and people like that. You've got the first stirrings, the new romantic thing happening. So all those were 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 kind of among the first records I bought. I wasn't buying records with any sort of discernment. I, I bought Gangsters by the Specials. I've got it when it was still on two-tone, like the indie label. It's not on Chrysalis. It's, yeah. My copy's on two-tone, uh, which makes me sound pretty cool. Until you realize that on the same day I bought that, I bought Hooray, Hooray, It's a Holly Holiday by Boney M. So <laughs> there was no sort of logic. When you're younger, you also have this of thing that just pop music per se was great. And it didn't, re- you know, I had sort of things I preferred to other things a bit, but ultimately I sort of liked all of it. I suppose the first thing that really I was a fan of was Adam and the Ants. Yeah. Um, that was immense. That was life-changingly immense seeing Adam and the Ants on top of the pops. And for about 18 months, I nailed my colours to the the, the mast of Adam and the Ants. In a way, I never have done since with another band. I was obsessed with them. I, I pestered my mum to go to the tour shop there, and I got, like, kids' face paints. And I did an approximation of Adam Ants' white stripe look. And then... I went out looking like that. I actually went out on my bike. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, got a pretty frosty reception from my mates. Um, went, I went back home again pretty quickly. People would say, what was the first album you ever bought? And I'd say Kings of the Wild Frontier by Adam Leigh pretty Pretty cool choice, you know, rock critic, Epicurean tastes. <laughs> the reality of it is that was the second album I bought with my own money. And the first album I bought with my own money was Initial Success by B.A. Robertson. <laughs> uh, <well>. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an absolutely dreadful record. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's not, not so cool. You know, it's absolutely beautiful about just loving music for what it is or what you perceive it to be, you know, and you can never get back to that.
0: I don't know if later on in life, we almost kind of, I wouldn't say regress, but we get back to a point where you can almost see the bigger picture.
1: Yeah, I think that's really true. And I also think the older you get, the less point I see in getting upset yeah. about not liking things. You know, I spent an inordinate amount of time in my teens and twenties and even in my thirties, you You're angry. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it really doesn't matter. So I've definitely got more towards that stage the older I've got. Comes a point where it's just a bit unseemly, isn't it? <laughs> you know, 50 years old and like really, really angry about Coldplay or something. It's like, better things to be angry about, you know. When I was a kid, Music was all there was. Everything was mediated through pop music. You know, I wasn't into sport. I suppose that was the, your other option. You know, fashion was mediated through music. The way you spoke was, to a certain extent, mediated through music. Or you know, politics was mediated through music. You know, people listened to the Smiths and stopped eating meat. You know, I mean, which seemed to me a bizarre thing at the time. And says, so you know, but it shows you the impact this had. And it doesn't have that anymore because there's social media and influencers and all these other things crowding for your attention. Now, that's what I call music. 30 tracks with 11 number ones from Culture Club, Duran Duran, UB40, Kajagoogoo, Paul Young, Phil Collins, Tina Turner, Tracy Ullman, Genesis and Madness. Get Now Now, a double album or cassette and record departments of Woolworth, Tesco, Martin.
0: Now, that's what I call music. Let's move on. And we're going to go back to 1983 and we're going to go way back to the beginning of the Now That's What I Call Music series. I don't even know if we can call it Now One. Is it actually called Now One or is it called Now That's What I Call I think it's
1: called. I think it's just Now That's What I Call Music. Yeah. I don't think they were necessarily intending this to still be, you know, an extant series in, you know, whatever it is, nearly 40 years later.
0: So it was released on the 28th of November, 1983 it reached number one two weeks later and was there right through to Christmas and into the beginning of 1984. Alexis, why have you chosen this time of 1983?
1: Um, the reason I picked it was because 1983 was a year when the charts were still sort of magical. You know, it was just a sort of real I think also 1983 is a really interesting year in, sort of history of 80s pop because we tend to or I tend to sort of divide the 80s into two in my memory you know what I call the smash hits 80s sort of 1980 to about 1985 fingerless gloves, neon fingerless gloves and leg warmers and daily boppers and the kids from fame and all those bands that were big in the early 80s, Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet and all those kind of people. And then there's the other 80s, which is, you know, Levi's 501s and Doc Martin Shoes and the Pet Shop Boys and Warehouse Parties and Acid House. But what I realised, going back to this, that actually within that thing, so this falls right within the smash hits 80s, there are sort of changes and shifts 1983 is this sort of big year of flux in that you've had all these bands that were really big, sort of 80, 81, 82. And 1983 is the year that sort of changes. Quite a few of those bands split up. Soft Cell split up in 1983, Japan, Haircut 100 have just split up. These people that would be on the cover of Smash It have gone. Or some of them kind of really screw up. Orchestra maneuvers in the dark. Um, put out dazzle ships, and that sort of sinks them for a bit. You know, ABC put out Beauty Stab. Adamant is done for. All oh, the third things happened is some of them have gone completely supernova. So Duran, Spandau, Culture Club become just massive in the states. Culture Club are the one that I'd forgotten how big Culture Club were. So like ten million copies of Colour by Numbers. Even now, that would be a lot. And what that does, it sort of creates a vacuum in pop because, as I said, some bands are split up, some bands have dropped off, and even the bands that have gone supernova are sort of slightly removed from that world. They're less available. They're less available to be on top of the pops. They're less available to be in smash hits because they're off in America. So there is a sort of vacancy in pop music. There is a, clearly a vacancy for new bands to come through, new artists to come through. And this album sort of tells that story. Or it tells, no, it tells some of that story. Yeah. With this album, you know, we'll go through it trap by trap, but the entire psychodrama of Kajagoogoo's career is played out over the course (laughs) of this first Now album. They were the anointed successors. They were meant to be the new Duran Duran. It's amazing. I mean, they start the year at number one, by the end of the year it's gone completely tits up. And then you also see, if you look at the track listening, it's got Howard Jones on it. Now, Howard Jones is the sort of epitome of that kind of, second wave of 80s pop. And you know, Howard Jones was, you had all these people, it, that first batch of 80s pop stars, tended to be kind of quite odd. They were from an art school background, they're from an Indie-ish kind of background or whatever. And they'd sort of become huge pop stars, in some senses by accident. And some of them had intended to become pop stars and were very, you know, focused on doing that. Others it Happened It clearly been a, just a real mistake, you know. They, they were not happy. Mm-hmm. Howard Jones was a teetotal piano teacher from High Wickham, who liked prog rock, and had this mime artist. I was thinking about this, I think, like, God, you know, I was listening to a new song, and I think it's oh, not very good, you know, this record's pretty, pretty rubbish. And I thought, but if I was working at Phonogram Records and it had been 1982. And I was sitting there thinking, I'll tell you what, my quid's in this year, they're coming back. Soft Cell have got a new album coming out. Teardrop Explodes, they're pretty big, um, cover of Smash Hits. And my two big, you know, people that I put my chips on, both of them take loads of drugs, go <laughs> <laughs> completely mad, and make this, these two brilliant albums, but they're completely unsellable as pop records, you know, not yeah. Falling Apart and Wilder. And then someone comes to me I goes, I found this guy He's a teetotal vegetarian piano teacher from High Wycombe. And he likes prog rock, but he looks a bit modern. Yeah. Sign him up. So you, you sort of get some sense of this kind of flux and change. And also 1983 in my memory, the summer of 1983 is a really important thing in my memory, uh, by British standards, an unbelievably hot summer. And, Everything in the charts seemed to reflect the fact that it was really hot. It was the same thing happened in 1976, actually. If you look at the charts in yeah. 1976, it's full of records that sound kind of whoa, like hot weather. It's a bit languid or whatever. 1983, you've got things like obvious things, Long Hot Summer by the Style Council, Cruel Summer by Banana Rama. You've got things like All Night Long by the Mary Jane Girls, I.O.U. by Freeze. Yeah. Uh, Club Tropicana—they all sound like the summer holidays, you know—and some of that has seeped onto this album.
0: You know, we talk about phonogram. There must have been big, big disappointment meetings around Dazzle Ships. You're right,
1: <laughs> Beauty yeah, yeah, Stab.
0: Yeah. You know, now. But,
1: but I think, sorry to interrupt, but I yeah. think actually the, the failure of Dazzle Ships also says something about a sea change in mm. British pop music because up to that point, I once interviewed Andy McCluskey from M.D. and he said this. We were just doing whatever we wanted, and it went in the top five. And if you listen to the records that OMD made, uh, the singles they put out of Architecture and Morality, hmm. particularly uh, Made of All Orleans, there is no reason why that record should be at number five in the charts. It starts with like a minute of kind of ambient noise and then turns into what is, you know, with the benefit of hindsight a fairly obvious homage to Kraftwerk's radioactivity. That's what it sounds like. It's got the same synth sounds and stuff like that on it. It's got no chorus. Um, I mean, it, it, it sounds like something that should have been on Factory. And there seems to be a sort of change where they put out something like Dazzle Ships that, again, is sort of very experimental record. And people just like, no, listen to this. No, I want, you know, where, where's the tunes? Well, the, wasn't really that many changes to start off with, no. but it's, it's not them that's changed. It's the audience that's changed. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at Spandau Ballet, that's they're another really good example because the album they made prior to the album they make in 1983, the album Diamond. It's sort of all over the place. The, the yeah. second half is this weird kind of like arty and, you know, it didn't do as well as it was expected to. And, you know, you have to make some pretty pragmatic decisions if you're in that position, you know. And True is a really good example of a band making pragmatic decisions. And it's like, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to write big pop music.
0: That's where you see the biggest successes of 83, where there was almost a kind of strategic decision to reshape what had started in 1982 and move on and that's why Duran, you know, looking back now, Duran and Spandau Ballet and Culture Club as as those three examples, you know, you can kind of talk about the kind of success in America, I think at one point there was about 18, was it 18? Was it, well, let me just check my notes here. 16th of July, there was 18 UK acts in the American Billboard Top wow. 40. To crack America, you have to go to America. And that then leaves that gap in the UK charts, which is why the first, now that's what I call music, you see a kind of range of acts coming through for the first time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And some of them are kind of like one-off hits and some of them are bands that are going to kind of go on, you know, to be... Successful for quite a long time, although there's no bands on here of the of the sort of inverted commas new pop that really survived the great cull of 1986. You know, but that is down to emissions. Yeah, you know there yeah. are certain emissions which maybe we'll go on and talk about, and if they if they hadn't had those emissions, you would have had bands that straddled those two years. <laughs>
0: Let's go to, say one, say okay. one, track one, the ubiquitous Phil Collins.
1: The, the first of, of two appearances. I really liked this record. I had no idea it was a cover version. i would never heard the Supremes original. And I think it's good to have Phil Collins on there. There's a writer called Justin Quirk. Um, he wrote a very, very good book last year about heavy metal, about hair metal. In fact, mm-hmm. called Nothing But A Good Time. And he makes this point that by the mid 80s, one of the driving forces in in pop music on both sides of the Atlantic is what he calls boomer divorce energy. (laughs) And it's people, you know, who came of age in the 60s or early 70s and they get divorced and they write songs about it and it connects with other, and obviously the king of this is Phil Collins, who, you know, from the minute he rocks up on top of the pops, he is effectively an angry man Yes. Shouting at his ex's answer phone at four o'clock in the morning, you know. I listened to it again, and I was like, "No, I really like this." I don't feel the kind of enmity towards Phil Collins that that. No, but you know, you think actually this is a, a you know well done Motown homage that I guess also fits with that vogue of there's a kind of 60s retro thing going yeah. on. Yeah. You know, yeah. so people like Mari Wilson, Heartache Avenue. That somebody i can't remember who this was somebody made the point that they thought it might have something to do with channel four starting and mm-hmm. channel four started a lot of their schedule was made up of showing repeats of things like danger man and the avengers yeah. and so you know hats off to phil collins it's, it's fun it's good it's a good way to start that you know it's, it gets you straight in there it was number one as yeah. well yeah very important on this now album <laughs>
0: And then we move to Duran This Is there something I should know?
1: The singles that released off the Rio album are unequivocally brilliant pop songs. You know, the Hungry Like a Wolf, Save the Prayer, um, Rio itself. You know, you can't argue with these records. They're brilliant. Save the Prayer is a brilliant record. You know, this is just a racket, yeah. but worth having on here. Not just because it's number one. What it tells you about 1983 is, is is in the lyric. Don't say you're easy on me now because you're about as easy,
0: easy as, as a, a nuclear war. war. Yeah. <laughs> By the
1: time 1983 comes along, you have already had drummed into you at school. This is how you will definitely die yes. in a nuclear war. It's going to happen any minute. Duran Duran don't have anything to say about it, but feel they need to mention it. Yes. Right? I mean, say about nuclear war. I don't say, you know, all I've got to say about nuclear war is it's not going to be easy. And I think that's really interesting. I think it's also really interesting in the context of... 2021, because we live in an era where pop music is, is it, people are very keen for pop music to be socially engaged. Mm. What we actually happened as a result of Brexit and Trump and all these other kind of things that happened, we leapt straight to the you're about as easy as a nuclear war stage yeah. of political pop, where people felt obliged to mention stuff without really having anything to say about it. Yeah. Um, so you've got a lot of kind of box-ticky kind of pop music. Is There Something I Should Know has that little box sticky element in it. So in, in a way, it's an incredibly prescient record.
0: So we can then move to UB40, another cover version, but a massive, yeah. massive single.
1: Uh, again, I, I really like Red Red Wine by ub mm. In a weird way, what it is, is the sort of last embers of two-tone, isn't it? Mm. And yet sort of two, well, one band, UB40, sort of adjacent to two-tone and one band who were on Two-Tone Madness are 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 still sort of successful. Again, I think it works for the same reasons that the Phil Collins thing works, in that it's completely heartfelt. Um, UB40 had yet to move. The the sad thing about this record is, was that its success, which was vast and eclipsed any success that UB40 had previously had, moved them into just doing reggae cover versions of whatever, you know what I mean? Which was sort of their undoing. But... You know, there is a sort of glow of oh, it was just this era that I still really love pop music per se. You know, yeah. to me that reflects back on all this stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 um, Red Red Wine's fine. You know, it's sort of a bit dulled by its ubiquity. Am I going to say the most ubiquitous?
0: Still I so.
1: most ubiquitous. It probably is the most ubiquitous in twenty twenty one track off this album. Yeah. You're more likely to hear Red Red Wine when you turn on Radio Two or whatever than you are anything else on here.
0: I know, for example, much, much later on as a music fan, I wouldn't have got into the music of Trojan records. Hmm. So it's only later on that you find songs like that.
1: Oh no, it's coming for, what they're doing is, it's, it's the music of the youth. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I remember when I heard all this stuff, which is much, much later when I heard the actual original version of these, I was, oh God, that's that. Okay, right, that's from, yeah, okay. So they covered that as well. Okay, right, right, right. But yeah, fine, good. I mean it's it's pooling along this album as well. It's it's it, what it's doing already is just smacking you about the head with number ones. I mean it's just pummeling. You have three songs in it, every single song on the track listing thus far has been a number one.
0: Well, right? I mean it's very clear this is it's a front-loaded a side of Yes comedy. it is, isn't it?
1: Going mean, EMI Uber. Oh ambas, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which that would go disastrously wrong. Yeah, so yeah I was we,
0: gonna like, say, oh. which which kind of brings us to that point where late autumn eighty-three Wow, we've had Kajagogoo, it's been an amazingly successful year. Their singer's branched out on his own. We're gonna put his first debut single at track four.
1: <sighs> you know, I mean, shall we just talk about the three Kajagoo tracks that are on here? I
0: think it's it's a good time to pull them together because what's what's interesting, first of all, you know, by far the best Kajagoo song is Too Shy. Here it's relegated to side two, track three, over mm. a newly released Lamal single. <laughs> That was then, but
1: this is now, is the, the sort of the message it's trying to give you. Yeah. I went and listened to White Feathers by Kajagoogoo. Now I've never heard. And I think the problem with Kajagoogoo was that their hearts weren't really in it. Too Shy is fine. The follow-up to Too Shy, Be Bia, it beggars belief that this was your follow-up to number one single. It has no tune at all. It has no hook. It's nothing memorable about it. It's just, I just sort of thought I had this thing in my brain I was like is this true and I went back and I read that I've got this book uh, the best of smash hits which I bought at the time which is a collection of interviews and smash hits there's a piece by Neil Tennant in it where he's following Kajagoogoo about on their first tour and it's just pandemonium and girls fainting and screaming and in the middle of all this Nick Beggs is sat on the tour bus listening to Frank Zappa and I thought you are a man who doesn't deserve to be a pop star the other members of Kajagoogoo Clearly, because of what they subsequently went on to do, which was become prog rock musicians. Yeah. That's what where their hearts were. Their hearts weren't in being a pop band. And that became apparent very quickly. It falls apart very quickly. The idea that Lamal, who's probably, presumably the one member of Kajigugu who really does have his heart yeah. in doing this, can't come up with anything better than Only for Love, you know. Because Big Apple... Which is on here as well, but clearly, you know, if you're looking at record company politics, again, it's shunted down the track yeah. listing. Big Apple is a better record, so you know, it's just, it's just a bizarre thing, you know. And then he had a big hit with Neverending Story, which is. Oh boy, <laughs> such a weedy sounding record is. it? it's just. And then he made a whole album produced by Giorgio Moroder that didn't even come out in England. Amazing.
0: It's almost like a three act tragedy that you're seeing. <laughs> no, it is. It is. <laughs> you know, of of um of Kajuku. And actually, again, you know, if you're if you're looking at this from 2021 and you have no concept of 80s pop music, you wouldn't spot that. <laughs> The Now series quite often do that where they take a punt on something and often they get it really quite spectacularly wrong.
1: At least Only for Love by the Malt was a hit. Before Now came along, you would have these compilation albums. So there were always double albums, but there were two separate records and the Raiders of the Pop charts. Or yes. They'd be called something like, something to do with Space Invaders and there were Space Invaders on the cover. And they would really take a punt on things. They would oh, yeah. put things on there. That there was. My mate had one. And it had the follow-up to "I Am the Beat" by The Look on it, a record that I suspect was only ever heard on this compilation album. You know, yeah. so they are taking a pump, but they're not. They, it hasn't got that "it fell off the back of a lorry" feeling that compilation albums always had before. Pop compilation albums always had before. Now that's what I call music. Coming
0: well, up. you mentioned readers of the pop chart. Now that mm-hmm. was that was the first number one album of 1983, right? Wow. And and this one is the last number one. Of 1983 And there's a marked difference The track listing Of Raiders of the Pop Chart In amongst Our House by Madness mm-hmm. And Love Plus One By Haircut 100 Are tracks like Rawhide by The Chaps Right, that's the one I'm thinking of that, Yeah
1: what, what, this one? What, what, what the hell is that?
0: Right, (laughs) right. Um, You've also got on here. Well, we know Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin from "It's My Party." Mm -hmm. What we don't know is Johnny Rocco. Their track, I I don't know what what that track. Yep, Johnny Rocco by Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin. Record two has got. Yeah, that's it. I confess by the beat.
1: That's not involving the pop charts. You can't say right into the pop charts.
0: No, exactly. Um, Obviously, by the end of the year, you know, you look at this first now album and it looks classy. It mm. it feels curated. And that's why, after 1983, Ronco, K-Tel, they just couldn't compete anymore.
1: The thing about now is, as you say, it's curated, it's classy, it looks classy. Mm. You know, the cover's nice. Yeah. Whereas Radio of the Pop charts has got this kind of naff old cover of somebody dressed up like Indiana Jones. And yeah. they were always a bit like that. So yes, it is a step forward. It is completely a step forward. And you can totally see why it obliterates Every other compilation series except the Hits albums, obviously, which are the yeah. response. Sort of Heaven 17,
0: who had a great year apart from working with Tina Turner, they're here now with Temptation. Yeah. Yeah. And next up, again, a massive hit from 1983. It's a
1: brilliant, brilliant record. I think I've had this album as well. I bought this album uh, in 1983, The Luxury Gap by Heaven 17. And it's quite an odd. Record in a lot of ways because it clearly on one level is Heaven Seventeen really going for it, hmm. you no? Know? Because they had Penthouse and Pavement, which was a very sort of it was kind of a success, but it was more of an NME success. You know what I mean? It was it was, felt to me that it was more written about, even in the pages of Smash Hits, than it actually than you actually heard. But yeah, Temptation is a completely undeniable single. They follow it up with the unbelievably sombre come live with me.
0: Come live with I mean, me. Weird, which you know. which you don't hear much very often. <laughs> don't,
1: you don't. But, it, you know, in its own way, a sort of brilliant song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they follow it up with um, Crushed by the Wheels of Industry. I believe one of the members of Heaven 17 was a member of the Communist Party.
0: Hmm.
1: I think I'm sure it's saying yeah. in Smash Hits, uh, you know, a liberal guy, although actually a card-carrying communist... <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think Cross by the Wheels of Industry was a sort of attempt to kind of get some sort of Marxist thing in there, um, but Temptation doesn't really have that. It's just a brilliant record. It's just, and it's it's as you say, it's it's weird. In it feels weirder now through the lens of pop music in twenty twenty one. Than it did at the time There was yeah. more room I think in the charts For sort of Slightly odd records Slightly weird lyrics And, and so on and so forth Maybe the sound of it Is kind of a response To that thing That your zoo start Of having kind of A synthy thing going on With a really soulful Female singer over Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Carol yeah. Kenyon I think Isn't it singing on this And it's a fantastic um, Vocal performance from oh, Carol I mean, Kenyon. amazing You know yeah. I mean she makes the record It's just
0: fabulous Yeah One of these Sunshine records that we talk Indeed. about, quite Indeed. literally, from yeah. Uh, yeah. from Casey and the Sunshine Band. And an example of one of these 70s bands understanding the 80s. Yes. Yeah. So,
1: Which is something that also kind of, that's the other thing about Phil Collins. Artists from the 60s and 70s traditionally struggled in the 80s because it was, the 80s was like the world turned upside down. Everybody's coating Bob Dylan off all of a sudden. <laughs> but the (laughs) drum from Genesis is huge, you know? So it's like, everything's going going really weird. You know, if you're Joni Mitchell, it's like, what the hell's going on? You know, it's a brilliant record, give it up. It's a, it's a totally brilliant record. And again, I don't know whether it's me projecting my memories of that summer onto the music. It's just, you know, it just sounds, it sounds like July. It's just, it's, it's fantastic.
0: On a given breakfast show day, you you would hear give it up and it is, An unbelievably positive song. Um, And I think.
1: Haven't KC been in some terrible car accident?
0: Yeah, that's Um, right.
1: Like when he died or something like that. So maybe that has something to do with the positivity. I don't know that it does, but. um,
0: No, I I think so. I think so. No, I love Malcolm McLaren because he was he was one of those renegades antagonizing pop stars. He shouldn't even have been a pop star, Malcolm McLaren, but he made himself a pop star.
1: He had no no qualifications to be a pop
0: star. No, and became a pop star by proxy through other people and other genres and everything else. Um, but Double Dutch is again a fantastic record.
1: I would actually go further. And I would say that not specifically Double Dutch, but the album it came from Duck Rock, out of everything on this compilation is probably the most prescient record, you know, of the lot. It's a really interesting record, really interesting album insofar as it, you know, completely predicts what pop music will ultimately be like. Um, It's all about sampling. It's a magpie borrowing from here, there, and everywhere. I think the, the Buffalo Gals, which was the hit before this at the end of 82, the appearance of the video of that on top of the pops, was the kind, in a way, was the Starman moment of the 80s. You know, that was the thing that in, genuinely was the thing, much more so than Rapper's Delight or The Breaks by Curtis Blow or any of those rap hits beforehand that introduced the idea of hip-hop culture. I don't remember seeing anybody break dancing before I'd seen that video. I remember it being a huge thing the next day in the playground. Like, oh, God, you know, so it was spinning on his head. At the same time, it's an unbelievably problematic record <laughs> in that, he just basically took a load of work by African artists and stuck his name on it. This is straight up theft. It's oh, yeah. really, really bad. You know, it's awful. Yeah. But Double Dutch is a brilliant, brilliant piece of music. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's great. And you know, that brilliant thing that where every single he puts out has a new thing attached to it. Yeah. So with Buffalo Gals, it's kind of hip hop culture. He co-opts that and, Present it to you with double dutch. It's the thing of double dutch skipping. Then you know it, it's a voguing in the yeah. the eighties, or you know his attempt to sort of fuse opera and R and B on the Fans album. It's just, it, it's just, it's just really, really good. His sort of performance on it is sort of incredible as well. Yeah, there's this great story in there's a very good autobiography of Michael McLaren that came out last year. Mm. They're making the record. And they've gone around collecting all these things and Trevor Horn's doing this, that and the other. And, and it comes to Malcolm McLaren, the point where he has to do his vocals. And he gets in the vocal booth and starts. And Trevor Horn looks at his engineer and goes, you forget earning, earning any of your points on this album. It's just, it's, it's <laughs> over. It's, just, it's like, you can't do it. You know, you can't. And somehow they managed to comp it together, like, yeah. you know, word by word yeah. or line by line. You can't tell on this record. I think it's just exuberant, beautiful, amazing African guitar part on it. Probably my, my favourite record actually on this whole compilation, I would say.
0: Looking back from now, with my understanding of 1983, that album and another album, Speaking in Tongues by Talking Heads, yes. which at the time, 1983, I had no reference point to, it just wasn't cool. on my radar because it wasn't, it wasn't chart music as such, you know, but no. you go back now, I can listen to Speaking in Tongues and it reminds me of a summer 1983
1: Right 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 You right. know what I mean
0: Even yeah. though I didn't know The album then It yeah. sounds like The summer of 83 And also Dark
1: Hawk Has an amazing sort of It's like a patchwork Isn't it It's yeah. got all those sort of Interstitial bits In between the tracks Of the World Cup Suites and on the radio And stuff like that It's a brilliant And we move on to Another fabulous track
0: Bonnie Tyler Total Eclipse of the Heart My
1: Total Eclipse of the Heart Is brilliant Because It is this ridiculous Jim Steinman Preposterously camp. Sort of confection. When Meatloaf does this stuff, and I really like Meatloaf, I really like out of hell by Meatloaf. It's sort of ridiculous and overblown, and he knows it's ridiculous and overblown. Bonnie Tyler just sings the shit out of "Total Eclipse of the Heart." She sings it with complete conviction. She means every word that she's singing. And that's what sort of makes it. You've got this kind of preposterous stuff going on. This unbelievably heartfelt vocal in the middle of it. You know, she, she means what she's singing. And I think that's quite a powerful thing. I run a little, well, help run a little club night called uh, Late Night Minicab FM. And uh, the point of Late Night Minicab FM, which we do in Brighton and sometimes in London, um, we play music that... Would sound great if you heard it in the back of a cab when you were drunk at three o'clock in the morning. And Total Eclipse of the Heart is a, you know, you can't really have a late night mini FM without playing that towards the end of the evening. Yeah. And a bunch of people of a certain age, our age, people of 40 something things, in a pub at half past midnight, and they've all had a lot to drink, you play Total Eclipse of the Heart, it decimates the room. Yes, people get on tables and start screaming. I mean, it's 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 um it's a really full on experience, and it, it it's a really 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 good record. And also, whenever I see Bonnie Tyler interviewed, she seems like a really good laugh. Oh yeah, like someone you'd like to go to the pub with. You know, so yeah, brilliant. Again, brilliant. But a, a record that has no sort of connection to anything else. On this album No kind of Sonic connection No Do you know what I mean There's nothing on here That's like a really It doesn't seem to link To anything else on here
0: The only kind of connection That I did have But it doesn't really work When you look at it Because they're four Quite different songs Each one of these sides Finishes with what you would Consider a big ballad So you've got Bonnie Tyler At the end of side one You've got Mm -hmm. Paul Young At the end of side two You've got People, Bryson and Roberta Flack and Culture Club Victims. Now, they're all quite big ballads, but actually they're not all the same. They're all quite different in their own way. Hmm, they're um, very different, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the yeah. only thing that you could group them together is you could say that they are of a ballad style.
1: Yes, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. I guess they're leading up to some sort of big sort of grand finale. Um, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's to do with the sequencing of the of the record. And also, of course, the fact it was a huge number one hit. Exactly. Um, that's yeah. why it's there. But it just seems to be sort of sonically, other than, as you say, being a ballad, it doesn't have anything it. in common with anything else on here. Should we do the two Culture Club tracks together?
0: Yeah, so we've, so we've got Karma Chameleon kicking off mm-hmm. side two and Victims finishing off the album at the end.
1: The yin and the yang of Culture Club.
0: Yeah. I thing.
1: Culture Club's legacy is really, really interesting, I think, because unlike Spandau and unlike Duran Duran, Boy George is bigger than any of Culture Club's records. Mm. You know what I mean? The, The individual members of Spandau Ballet are not bigger than True. The individual members of Duran Duran are not bigger than Rio or Save a Prayer, or is there something I should know? And I think that has something to do with the fact that Culture Club's biggest hit, Karma Chameleon, isn't very good it's dated very badly it feels oh, yeah. it's quite a sort of and that is unfortunate because i don't think that's a reflection on the quality of culture club's music generally yeah i think culture club i think boy george is a really good songwriter
0: mm.
1: and that is proven by victims oh yeah it's a fantastic record i mean it's yeah. a million times better than karma comedian yeah and also going back to the kind of linking things in the past victim sounds like christmas 1983 yeah yeah, it it should have been the Christmas 1993
0: number one. Do you know, and it's interesting because in the track notes, it was released right at the end of November. So this is, again, one of these punt records. Less less of a punt, obviously, being Culture Club. But the sleeve hmm. notes say almost certain number one by the time you have this LP. It
1: wasn't a number one, was it? It wasn't.
0: It wasn't even a number two. And, really? and I think number two. Okay. Okay. It was The Flying Pickets for number one. But number two, ahead of Victims, was My Oh My by Slade.
1: Oh, my word.
0: <laughs> Just take a pause there for that one. No, I would probably say Victims as my favourite culture club track because it has everything. Yeah. It, has, it has a powerful vocal. I think the lyrics are amazing.
1: The lyrics are incredible, which I never noticed at the time. Yeah. And it's very, very clearly uh, a song about a gay relationship. Mm. But one partner within this relationship is trying to keep hidden. Yeah. You know, to me, that's what I assume it's about. But that's quite a ballsy thing to be writing a song about in 1983. This is, you know, there was not a lot of of stuff like that in the charts. And it's a beautiful lyric. I mean, it's a really emotive and beautiful uh, piece of writing. Um, It's, it's, yeah. Is is it Culture Club's best record? I don't know. Time. I've got a real, real thing for time. Time. Is, a,
0: time is a fabulous track as well.
1: Time but, is fantastic. Church of, of Mind. I, I really like virtually all of Culture Club's singles. Yeah. Other than Calm Chameleon, which is, know. is you know, went to number one, like, everywhere in the world and was the record that established them as a huge.
0: And, I, and as this album has been released in the UK, the cover star of Rolling Stone in November 1983 is... Boy is it Boy George? It's the England
1: wow. swings issue okay. of Rolling Is this Boy Middles. George or somebody else though? On that cover? No,
0: it, it, it is. It is. Oh, it's just Boy George, my God. It's just Boy- so it's not even Culture Club. It is Boy George. Wow. And which
1: goes back to the point I was sort of making about, you know, yeah. Boy George's sort of legacy is way bigger than really any record the culture club made. And uh, that's probably right. I think that's probably the, the correct thing. I think it's it is very easy because he was so accepted as just a sort of figure within British pop and then global pop, it's easy to forget what an incredibly brave thing Boy George did. Yeah, All the sort of androgyny in pop prior to Boy George wasn't that androgynous. No. David Bowie he didn't actually look like a woman. No. Boy George, I thought, honest to God, when Culture came on top of the pop's doing Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? I thought he was a woman. Yeah. You know, and that's an amazing thing to do. Yeah. So it is sort of right the Boy George is a bigger figure than Culture Club are a band now.
0: Continuing on, we've got one of those one-hit wonders. Yeah. Men, Men Without Hats, the safety dance. It's brilliant. It's a great song. I couldn't
1: believe that great. I thought this was when
0: I heard it again. It goes back to what we were saying earlier. It has nothing to say about anything. No, God
1: knows about nothing. It's about nothing at all. But that line, you know, you can leave your friends behind because your friends don't dance, and if they if don't they dance, don't then are no friends at mine. Yeah. That's a really good really lyric.
0: Yeah, it's great. And and again, visually, it ties up with that video as well. But,
1: they were they were big in America, weren't they? This was a huge hit in the States yeah. as yeah. well. I don't think they ever did. They didn't, I don't even know what any other records by Men With have Oh, like no, no. Albums called or anything like that. Nobody. Um, <laughs> No, 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 no. They're one of those bands, if you saw them all, one of those those eighties revival things, you think on, what are they gonna do for the other fifteen minutes they're on stage?
0: <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> um, I know Actually, for me, you know, we're talking earlier about Malcolm McLaren. The highlights of this album now looking back are those memory nuggets yeah, more than so. more than some of the big, big acts, you know, on here. I
1: think that's but I think that's to do with the fact that the big, big acts exist in a constant present. And it's very hard to have some sort of nostalgic feeling about something you hear a lot. So something like, is it something I should know, isn't Redolent of 1983, because it just it's it's sort of always been in the ether ever since. Whereas the Safety Dance is absolutely, it's just pushing that button, bang, yeah. it's 1983, and you, you, you're straight back there, because you probably haven't heard it that much since.
0: If I can pair two songs together on this site, sure. Down Under by Men at Work is... Absolutely is in that same kind of league for me. Yeah. I mean, they had slightly more success. Their album, Business As Usual, was a
1: big That's album. Insane. It sold so many copies in the States. I had no idea.
0: Massive. I... That album was number one in the UK for five weeks. Run. Five mm-hmm. weeks straight run in February, wow. <laughs> which is unbelievable.
1: Bearing in mind that there's only one other hit off it, which yep. is the, I would argue, superior Overkill. I yeah. It's a better success than Down Under. That is amazing That album sold so much there must be loads of people there who know all you know, the album tracks oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, uh, of the first minute work I mean it all ended very badly for Men at work
0: I believe I it fought, didn't it Australia at that point wasn't really on on the radar musically it looked like a completely different world and obviously that was yeah, the key to Men at work was you know that was the selling pitch
1: you forget how far away places you used to see and how how many big Australian stars were there ACDC not very many, it wasn't many. Really. Yeah. But, you know, it's there's not a huge amount of music no. that came from Australia. Um, and I think that's part of it. I think the exoticism of it and the fact that it was a song celebrating Australian-ness in all yeah. its sort of, um, you yeah. know, it's many, many and varied forms. And this notion that Australians tend to leave Australia. Yes. <laughs> and turn up pulling pints in
0: your pub, you know. Um, and eating Vegemite sandwiches, which again, I didn't know what that was. No idea what that was. in no
1: And that weird verse that seems to imply that somebody's trying to sell him opium, yeah, he's lying in a dead body, yeah, not much to say. It's quite a weird thing to, to you know, it's, just, it's like, oh, and then I did some heroin, um, all <laughs> <laughs> sort of denouement to the song. So, back to make Oldfield and late Shadow, brilliant love it. Everything about it. It's just great. I, again, I bought this as well um, when it came out. And again, I have very little kind of critical distance to say, you know, to, to sort of comment on it. Yeah. Again, I haven't listened to it in God knows how long. And I th- just put it on I was like, this is brilliant. This it's is a, great
0: great it's and, a great pop and song. And actually, I mean, Michael Oldfield, for all his prog rock grandiose gestures, has... A knack of writing good pop songs. And again, I suppose, you know, to kind of make that link with Heaven 17, what makes this track is the vocal by Maggie Riley, like Carol Kenyon for for Heaven 17. is yes. a fabulous vocal line.
1: It is a really good vocal. Those are things, a brilliant, uh, again, I ended up Wikipedia in this. It revealed two things. One, the absolute weirdness of Mike Oldfield's singles chart career. First hit single is the main bit of Tube of the Bells. The, yep. the bit that's on The exit. Then the next two hits he has are in Dulce Jubilo and the appalling Portsmouth. Portsmouth. Um, which was his biggest hit, which was number two, apparently. Then his next hit is the Blue Peter theme tune. Yep. then he has a disco track, Guilty and then this, and it's just like, wow this is the, this guy's covering a lot of musical ground yeah, it's it's a really good record and it's the last person you would expect to be having a hit in 1983 as well, Yeah, you know, going back to that sort of notion of people from the 70s and 60s struggling with the 80s on this, for the, you know, 3 minutes 37 seconds that Moonlight Shadow lasts Michael Food is bossing 1983 I mean, he's, oh, talking, yeah. you know yeah. It doesn't sound like some relic from the 80s, if the 70s making a record, you know, it's modern pop record. It's, 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 it's brilliant, brilliant.
0: But to show that there's some kind of flow in our conversation here, somebody else that's doing that on this side is Rod Stewart. Indeed, yeah. Because, you know, you actually talk about these um, people from the 70s moving in. The ones mm. that got it, got it really right. And we talk about Phil Collins polishing up Motown. Mike Oldfield nails pop music perfectly there. Rod Stewart as well, he gets 1983 right with Baby Jane.
1: Yeah. Rod Stewart is is sort of a shapeshifter, isn't he? He, His ability to kind of... He doesn't have a sort of down period, Rod Stewart. With the exception of Rod Stewart and Genesis, the sort of old guard coming back, which is a kind of feature of, of 1983. Elton isn't on here. And the i still standing. Bowie isn't on
0: here. No, I know.
1: He's not <sighs> bearing in mind it's AMI. I EMI. Mean, it's amazing. It's I don't know
0: why. I don't know why.
1: You know, so that isn't that sort of well-represented, whereas Rod Stewart is, is here. And prior to Baby Jane, he'd done things like Young Turks, which sounds mm-hmm. like a new wave record. Yeah. You know, he did Some Guys Have All A Look. So his ability to kind of move with the times up to a point is yeah. sort of amazing. I guess the wheels come off when there's that that Britpop album that goes down incredibly badly oh, yeah. in the 90s. But yeah, I really like Baby Jane.
0: I remember when I did my mobile disco days way back. Oh, yeah. An absolute guaranteed floor filler.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet it would be a floor filler now if you were playing at a wedding or something like that. Oh, yeah. That people would get on the floor to Baby Jane, you know? Yeah, it doesn't, again, it doesn't feel like some sort of relic of another era trying to get hip. And it's one of those records that sort of should have been number one. The writer yeah. Simon Price has this thing about certain records have this sort of essence of number one within them. The example he always uses is uh, Together We Are Beautiful by Fern Kinney.
0: Yeah.
1: It just sounds like a number one. It just doesn't sound like it should be anywhere else in the charts. called a number one. Yeah. And Baby Jane is a bit like that. This is a really interesting record. Yeah. Because on one level, A, it's it's a sort of offshoot of Malcolm McLaren in a weird way because the Rocksteady crew were in the video for Buffalo Gals. It is one of the first times I can remember seeing a, inverted commas, hip-hop act who looked like a hip-hop act. They, They look like what you expect Rappers from New York to look like they've got a boombox and they're wearing Kangol hats and da-da. Whereas prior to that, I think when the Sugar Hill Gang and people like that, they're just wearing like normal clothes, you know, ordinary, ordinary guys. But written and produced by Stephen Hague. Really? Yep. Now that's interesting. It completely, he wrote the. I think he co-wrote and certainly produced the whole album that it came from. So it's kind of a construct, you know. It's not produced by Arthur Baker or somebody, you know, someone yeah. like that. I think it really stands out. I really enjoyed it. Um, my kids thought it was dreadful. So, you know, they were like, what oh, is it what rap used to sound like? You know, it is sort of, on one level, it's slightly naff. And it also, I suppose, says something about the way hip hop was viewed at this point in Britain, which was as a source of novelty hits. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. You would not have sort of thought it was something that would be the dominant force in pop music within within sort of less than 10 years of this record coming out. I sort of liked it. And also it goes back to the Down Under thing. The video shows in New York. I
0: know, um, I know. That was
1: sort of brilliant. Just seeing, you know, it's the video for fame was the same thing. You've got to see Times Square and stuff.
0: Great. Yeah. It was brilliant. Yeah, that was so, um, yeah. Paul Young, whatever else. So, yeah. So again, another kind of, I didn't know it was Motown at the time. I, did, I wouldn't have known it was Marvin no Gaye at the time.
1: No, not at all. No
0: idea. And again, you know, if you're of a certain age, Paul Young owns this song completely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is a Paul Young song. I think it's important because of the appearance on it of Pino Palladino, the uh, the bass player, who's the, the bass playing on this is nuts. And sort of a by his own account completely. I mean, Pino Palladino is now probably the most famous session bassist in the world and has played with absolutely everybody. And it's all down to this record which sort of showcased this kind of fretless bass sound that he was doing. When they showed the repeats of Top of the Pops on BBC Four, I noticed that after this record came out, you would get, say, someone like Nick Haywood would have a single out. And the only other person on stage with Nick Haywood would be Pino Palladino. And he became like the equivalent of having some sort of, a sort of musical equivalent of having like a, amazing designer jacket or something that was a really coveted thing. He's like, check me out. I've got Pinot Palladino on my record. Yeah. I thought this was all right. Again, it's the summer of 83. You know, it's it's got that kind of hot weather feel to it.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, I
1: think it's I think it's, a, I think it's a pretty good record. I don't, You know, I, I can see why, again, Paul Young is somebody that, that perhaps his critical reputation has dropped off somewhat. But, you know, this is a record. It's, it's fine, you know? The one thing I would say about it, when Marvin Gaye sings it, he sounds really anguished about the fact that wherever he lays his hat, that's his home. Paul Young sounds like he doesn't give a shit.
0: I know. I know. <laughs>
1: couldn't care <get> less. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just me, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, that's yeah it. Sorry. Um, Moving on. You know. Anyway, yes.
0: Side three. New hmm. edition and Candy Girl. This had been a big hit in 1983.
1: A huge hit. And weirdly, I seem to remember it being sold. And this tells you something about the times is the American version of musical youth are here. You oh, know, wow. that was the kind of seems to be the, 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 the context in which it was placed. I think it's quite a charming record. I think you have to, mm. you have to disassociate the reality of the person singing it. Cause you know, yeah. it was Bobby Brown's subsequent, Life has been pretty grim. It's sort of amazing in that it is ABC by the Jackson family. yeah, <laughs> well, it is, yeah. <laughs> Um, but you know, it's kind of it's 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 a really sweet and endearing record. And I suppose it's one of the few moments on this now album, other than Hey You the Rocksteady Crew,
0: because it hasn't got IOU by Freeze on it. I know that's one of the missing tracks on this, isn't it? Really? Yeah, definitely.
1: You know, so there is this thing happening, this kind of electro thing that will mm. eventually lead into hip hop, and you get a little hint of the flavor of that on Candy Girl, you know, and that's quite an important part, I think, of the sort of overall makeup of pop music in this year,
0: yeah. Because at this point, looking across the album, there's no great indication of hip hop, electro, dance coming the way it will in 1984, really. An
1: enormous amount of black music on it, generally,
0: it's not here on this.
1: No, the only sort of representatives of kind of in inverted commas alternative music of the cure. Uh, or Simple mind to a certain degree. As I said, those kind of old stages that are making a comeback aren't on there. It's got quite, that's what I meant when I said, I think it's quite curated.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's totally- um, because they had the whole year to pick from, which was the only year that now had that. They had a whole year to pick and and that's why it is very carefully curated. It is the majority, of the number ones. It's the big acts. There isn't a lot of, gamble choices on here
1: no it's yeah you're right it's sharing a certain version of pop music in 1983 and i think that's something that because it has so many number ones on it
0: we could look back on 1983 now and now did subsequent anniversary albums to celebrate years right. and at that point later on in 1993 1999 it's easy to say oh we'll put pale shelter on there we'll add mm. Everything Counts by Depeche Mode, because we now know that they are part of that whole picture of 1983. Mm. But there was an element to what they were doing here was saying, this is EMI Virgin, we are putting ourselves back in the compilation market, and we are firing a shot to say this is how we would do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a very, very good point. It is definitely sort of very EMI Virgin heavy.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. We've touched on the Big Apple, so we'll skip past that. Tina Turner, Here's this survivor. I mean, what
1: he is really a survivor, and so sort of weirdly, I didn't realize that it was
0: basically Heaven 17, mate. This yeah, record. yeah, you know, it's Martin Miller yeah. and people like that.
1: It's all right, it's not an amazing record, is it? Let's
0: state do you know, record. for this being the big new calling card for the second phase of Tina Turner's career, well, it's a bit underwhelming. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I think there are bigger and better singles off Private Dancer. But it was a huge hit. Also, Tina Turner, I think one of the reasons that she was able to kind of deal with the 80s in the way that some of her peers were not is that it felt like a really long time since Tina Turner had been famous. Mm. It was not Bush City Limits. is probably the hit before this. You know what I mean? Yeah. So she was able to be sort of, in a weird way, kind of reborn as a
0: you new know, star. I suppose the funny thing is, Something like Nutbush City Limits is maybe only a decade before this, but yeah. so much had happened between what? 73 and 83 that it did seem like a lifetime ago.
1: Yeah, if you think it's only 10 years, it definitely tells you something about how fast pop music moves. Yeah. You
0: know? But the positioning of Tina Turner on this album, though, gets her back into the market. Within six months, What's Love Got To Do With It is out. and
1: Which is the song you want to represent that album. Yeah. But in this case, yes, you're absolutely right. It positions her as part of this kind of firmament of, of pop music in 1983, which is, you know, kind of an important thing to do. And is it's not, as I said, not a privilege accorded sort of David Bowie or Elton John, which is kind of a weird...
0: Well, um, it's funny you know. about Elton John because in some ways, Elton John is one of the records of 1983. It was yeah. Elton coming back. He'd been there throughout the... Well, he was to a certain degree. I think he
1: would say he's coming back. But yeah.
0: it was a big comeback record the video the way that looks you know just the confidence of it and it was a very shiny pop 1983 song and it's missing off this album again it's easy through the kind of lens of nostalgia to say let's dance i'm still Mm. standing should be on these albums because we could certainly swap it's a really
1: odd choice not to have those things on yeah (laughs) Out. Human League. It's funny it? because you would have thought listening to this record that the Human League success was just going to continue. You know, it's, it's a brilliant record, give you
0: a question. It's it? a great song. And you sort
1: of think, okay, they're doing something different. It doesn't sound like Dare. You know, same, same is true of Mirror Man, which is the other sort of mm. hit from around this era. it's just about to go completely wrong for them the 84 they've completely gone as smashers would say down the dumper which is not an impression you get from this record No, it sounds like they completely know what they're doing they're moving into a new phase of their career they're doing something slightly different it's a it's a really really good record yeah it's it's, and it doesn't feel it feels like part of 1983 it doesn't feel like some sort of hangover from previous era or something like that
0: no and i suppose that's another example of you know the kind of evolution Hmm. from from 82 to 83 The Human League really epitomised that very well. Was it Virgin Records for Human League? I think it was. Must have been really, really, you know, at this point they're thinking, we can do no wrong here. Yeah. Dare 2 is going to be the album. It's going to send us stratospheric in 84. And unbeknownst to them, somebody's slowly taking all the wheel nuts out of the Human League (laughs) (laughs) to basically just let them roll down a hill. Yeah, there must have been frowns in the boardroom.
1: Oh, can you imagine? Oh, no. Certainly with quite a few of these artists, you know, the same thing with Beauty Stab by ABC, and as we said about the OMD record, you know, you just sort of think, oh, God, you know, what am I going to do with this? You know, I thought, oh, cancel the holiday, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not yeah. going to the Bahamas now, you know. So, know. Um, nil desperandum, because here comes Howard Jones. Howard Jones,
0: um, yep. The face uh, of 84. The face
1: of 84. <laughs> he was the face of 84 in some ways. was, way. actually, yeah. yeah. Um, Other than the fact that it is Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel. Oh, yeah. Um, And he was, you know, he was one of those guys who was clearly, you know, that was what he liked, prog rock. Again, it's interesting. There were two things that happened on Top of the Pops in 1983 that even at 11 or 12 years old, I looked at and thought, "Ah, that looks crap. And one of them was H2O, a band called H2O had a hit sleep. Oh, yeah. A saxophone player from H2O, in presumably an attempt to look mysterious, when he wasn't playing the sax, had a yo yo and he played with this yo yo. I was
0: like, what's he doing that for?
1: <laughs> and the second thing was, alas, Jed. Yeah. Uh, Jez? Jed? I can't
0: remember. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, Jed. Jez. Yeah. Yep, yep.
1: Um mime. It's not well, it wasn't good when Bowie did it, so it's sure as hell not going to be good when Howard Jones gets involved in that sort of thing. But he was really huge, big and massive in the States as well, you know? I know. I mean, I know. People really went for it. Uh UB40 again. I mean, you know, again, it's all right. It's not as good a record as red, red wine, but you know, tonight I celebrate my love for you.
0: Mm. <sighs> and somebody like Roberta Flack, you know the notion that it's Roberta Flack is
1: is kind of heartbreaking, isn't it? its as- Somebody wrote into Smash Hits after "Relax." Frankie Goes to Hollywood was banned. Going, why didn't they ban "Tonight I Celebrate My Love for You"? Because that's clearly also a song about sex. Um, no, it's just, it's, it's just no, it's, it's it's horrible. It's it's the one thing on here
0: that I'm like, oh god, this is just awful. It's like side three just slides out and it just falls out, and you think, is that it? <laughs> you know. It does, because
1: Please Don't Be really Cries All Right. It sort yeah. ends with a bit of a shrug, this side, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. But the next side, I think oh. They Don't Know by Kirsten McCall, is one of the greatest songs ever written.
0: Tracy Allman just epitomises this time as well, as 83 time. Yes. It's just a
1: totem... Fantastic record that doesn't have, unlike every other Tracy Ullman record, uh, which had this sort of hint of comedy about it. It's just such a brilliant song. I can't believe that it wasn't a hit for Kirsty McCall. It's one of those records that you just no. cannot imagine. It didn't even make the chart. Also, I think she was 17 when she wrote it.
0: It's such an amazing song. It really is um, an yeah. amazing testimony to Kirsty McCall. However, again, Tracy Ullman for me owns this song completely.
1: Oh, really? That's oh, yeah. interesting.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. I mean, okay. I am the high note. The
1: baby! That's 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 still still Christy McCall, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
0: (laughs) And and she got Paul McCartney in the video as well. Brilliant. Just be just being Paul McCartney in a car. It's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Another person that maybe could he have been on this? It could have been, um, because he could have had say 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 on here.
1: Well, that brings us to the biggest omission of all, Michael Jackson. It's the album of, of, of 1983 um, And that's not here Which is a kind of weird thing But again I guess it goes back To that he's on CBS
0: Well I wonder though Because this is This is a full year Before the Hits album Kicked off Right So I mean Well Rod Stewart's The CBS act on here There's not many To be fair Maybe they but just weren't
1: Allowed to get to Michael Jackson I, I just
0: think Michael Jackson Was so stratospheric By this point Yeah That they didn't need To sell Michael Jackson On this album Because he was no. selling himself
1: no, absolutely, absolutely. But it is a sort of thing that's, if, in in terms of giving a sort of totality or a big picture of the year, it's something that's really, really seriously missing. Yeah. Kissing with confidence.
0: This is a whole podcast in itself, this song.
1: Isn't it? Well, the whole album, I had no idea mm. about it. First of all, first off, I didn't know it was Carly Simon singing this until about three weeks ago when I was writing a thing about Carly Simon for The Guardian. Yeah. And then you look at the album and the the, the cast list of the album is insane.
0: It's unbelievable.
1: Sting, Stevie Winwood, Nile Rogers, Sly and Robbie play on it as well.
0: It's produced by Todd Rongren. Yes, Todd Rongren's on it as well. Yes. (laughs) How many people can you cram in? But what I didn't know as well is that a lot of this comes back to the, and Sly and Robbie are important from the album point of view, because it's the Point Compass, Nassau. Oh, right, 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 right,
1: right. It's a very Um, Island Records selection of people,
0: actually, isn't it? Yes. And when you know that and you visualise it all in that Point Compass studio in NASA, suddenly Mm. it kind of makes sense. And she was a
1: celebrity photographer as well, the woman behind it. So I sort of assumed that she knew these people through taking their
0: photographs. Yep. So it's a wonderfully glamorous 1983
1: story. It is a wonderful... And it sort of has that thing that goes back to what we were saying about the Rocksteady crew. Of it spoke to me at the time of New York and of a sort of life that was completely out of my grasp, where yeah. people had brunch, whatever the hell that was. And they lived in lofts apparently, <laughs> which was, it seemed, Why would you be living in a loft? We had packing cases in our loft, you know. know. So you know, it was this notion of this? I was used to get that from Talking Heads as well. This notion of this kind of sophisticated New York thing going yeah. on. I was quite glad to hear it
0: again, to be honest with you. In that wonderful 1983 way, it's about nothing. It's, no, it's about absolutely
1: nothing at all. No, 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 no. Oh. It's, it's it's got no. It's completely empty. Piece of fluff, (laughs) but um, but no, it's it's I I really liked it. I really heard it and I thought, yeah, this is great. Yeah, I can sort of see why this was a hit, you know, I can see why this sort of
0: worked. Yeah,
1: uh, Phil, Phil again, Genesis,
0: it was a big hit. Um, and yep, it's it's fine, big hit. It's funny because. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's also shorter than Mama, so... so there you go. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it would have taken up two spaces on that side if we put Mama on, so... And then you've kind of got almost this, I hate to say, an indie double, but...
1: <laughs> it's a weird thing, isn't it? In that The Love Cats sounds great and sounds correct in this mm. company, I think. It, it fits. It's a pop, it's a very well-written pop song. You know, there is a reason why it sort of, sort of lasted. And I personally prefer... The Cure when they're doing pop songs, yeah. you know, things like Friday I'm in Love and stuff like that, than I do to Faith or Pornography or something like that. Um, but the Simple Minds thing, I think, sticks out like a sore thumb. What it represents in terms of the makeup of pop music in, in 1983 is this strand of previously post-punk artists, experimentalish kind of post-punk artists who have decided that their future lies in stadiums. And you could swap that out for a song by U2 yeah. Or you could swap it out for a song by a Big Country. I felt it was a bit of a drag, this song. It's really long as well. Um, it's, it's, what, um,
0: it's what Smash Hits were called a chugger. <laughs> it's just, it's it really is a chugger. Chugs <laughs> along. And New Gold Dream for me is a fantastic record. I think you know it was yeah. it was probably as good as Simple Minds ever got. There's there's my controversial moment of the podcast. This this just <laughs> felt like, yeah, it was like as you say, it was like a kind of trial run for the stadiums. Um, and it's 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 a very loud, it's a very in your face song as well. It just assaults you.
1: Yes, absolutely, yeah. It's completely, It completely does that. And it, yes, exactly. It, it boom. It sounds like it's already playing in a stadium. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's the record itself sounds like it's, it sounds like a band playing in a stadium. So they've got that right. Yeah, I just didn't. I just didn't think it fitted with the rest of this record. There are things that I would have swapped out. You know, a number of things that we've talked about already that I think you can swap for. <laughs> The Sun and the Rain by Madness, which I love, it reminds me of going on a school coach trip to the Imperial War Museum. The sort of last gasp of, of the, the kind of super hit making version of Madness, it becomes a bit more sort of sombre and they yeah, yeah. break up.
0: We talked earlier about the lyrics of Victims. For yeah. me, the melody of The Sun and the Rain, it's almost classical. You know and you know, yeah, there is that string sound, it's lovely, it's just such a fabulous hmm. song. Um, yeah, it's a
1: really well written record, yeah, yeah, and really well put together and exists in a sort of tradition of British pop of the days, perhaps the kinks and stuff like that. You know, it I mean, it, it's um, you can see why they lasted longer than any other two tone band, put it that way.
0: And then and we're on with victims, victims, and we've completed now that's what I call music, volume one. <laughs> i would
1: say you know the one thing i would talk about things that are missing yeah um, one thing we haven't mentioned that's missing is the eurythmics who are one of those bands that totally straddle those two eras they're still they're probably bigger in the second part of the 80s than they are in the first part of the 80s although they are huge in the first part of the 80s and again i went back and listened to the sweet dreams i made of this album and if that came out tomorrow everyone would go mendel it hasn't dated no at all And the other thing that should be on here, and this is just a personal choice, because I think it's the greatest record ever made, is um, Stepping Out by Joe Jackson. Yes. Which is a great 1983 record, and it is my all-time favourite single. So um, that was, I think of the things that were missing, that was the other thing I thought of.
0: And that's always the kind of one thing that is great about these albums, is saying, okay, you know.
1: Of course, but it involves the benefit of hindsight. As it was, as it stood, as we've said, it was a complete step up In terms of pop compilations, it was completely, you know, different. It was a much more quality product. And, you know, until you sit down and think about it, if you sit and listen to this from Soup to Nuts, you sort of go, yeah, this is a really good kind of assessment of what 1983 was like. You've really got to sit down and go, actually, what's missing? Oh, hang on, yeah, what about them? What about, you know? And that's when you sort of see the gaps in it. But as a piece of work, as a compilation as a product, it's actually really, really, really good. It's incredibly well put together, and it was just sort of, it was kind of delightful revisiting it. Like I said, it was probably not the last year that pop music meant that the charts meant that much to me, but I think it was the most sort of impactful and profound of those later years of pop. So, um, so yeah, it's 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 great. So well done, the compilers of classical <laughs> music. You know,
0: um, I'm sure they'll go to every success. I can see this concept working for them. Yes. Right? <laughs> Man. Um, it's got legs. <laughs> I think um, you know what? Let's let's wait till the spring of eighty-four and we'll try another one and see how it works. <laughs> Absolutely. There it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Alexis, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to look at now That's What I Call Music.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And going back to the summer of 83, which was very hot and had lots of memories. It's been fantastic going back through the tracks and hearing your memories. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you.